Father, I want to thank You in Jesus' name. I want to thank You, Father, for the grace that we just sang about. We sang about it really in every song. We sang about how we delight ourselves in You. Father, we, we sang about this scandalous grace. Call it what it is. And Father, that is our message. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I call it grace. The free, loving kindness of God. So Daddy, I thank You for the anointing on my life to preach good news to people. And Father, I want to thank You. Good news makes us rich. It doesn't leave us with a, a poor mentality or a poor mindset. It enriches us in our hearts, first of all. And then it enriches us in our bodies and in our minds. And just, it just proliferates throughout the whole man. And so, Father, because we understand this revelation of grace and unconditional love, it causes us to walk differently in life. It causes us to speak differently in life, Daddy. It causes us to even think and pray differently. So, Daddy, I'm just really thankful for this message of how much you love us and that your grace is continually with us. And Father, thank you for this word. I bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning to a message that I'm calling The Strength of Grace is Christ. The Strength of Grace is if a believer wants to flow in the unforced and rest also in the unforced and effortless rhythms of grace then he or she must totally abandon an old covenant mindset it's what we call performance based Christianity that's just another way to say it and I have found, even with the message of grace, it's so easy to move in and out of rest. One moment, you feel like you're in rest. The next moment, you feel restless. You're in rest. You're restless. And you know what? I understand because we're humans. We're, we're human beings that there are going to be situations in life that cause those kind of things. But what we talk about here at Triumphant Grace Ministries, we're talking about your identity here. Who you are really in Christ. Who the real man is in Christ. That should just be solidified who you are in Christ. This past Thursday was going to be my night to begin really studying for this message. I came home. I had dinner with my wife. We visited for a little while, and then I walked down the hallway to my office to study for a little bit. It's been a long day. I get up very early. I was in the office for about 10 or 15 minutes. I know this never happens to you guys, but my eyes started getting very, very tired. My eyelids felt like there was an elephant standing on each side of them. You know, just, I just couldn't keep them open. I'm like, God, this is not working. And listen, you know, in the past I would have said, you know, because of just this religious mindset, press through, brother, this is the thing to do. God, you're going to be happy with me if I just really sacrifice here. And I just said, no, I'm going to go take me a little fiesta you know, a little 15 or 20 minute nap. Power naps, they call them. They're really helpful, you know. And so I came out into the living room. My wife was just watching something and I laid down on the sofa. I just to take a little 15, 20 minute nap. I don't know what time it was, probably around 7 o'clock, maybe a little before 7. And when I woke up, I looked straight across at that clock and it was a few minutes in front of 10 o'clock. I'm like, what? That can't be right. My brain was like, that ain't right. This was supposed to be a power nap. So I jumped up. Now the night is far spent, right? And so I walked in the kitchen. My wife's in there doing dishes. And I walked in the kitchen. I said, honey, 
I feel like I just wasted the entire night. And she said to me, Honey, rest is never wasted time. I said, Yep, I know. <laughs> exactly what you're saying. But it's Thursday. i got to preach on Sunday. Rest is never wasted time. Whether we're talking physical rest, emotional rest, just mental rest, or spiritual rest. I like what Andrew says. He says preparation time is not wasted time. Sometimes that preparation time is just the time of rest. What I want you to see through this message today is that from the beginning of creation, God has purposed and destined that his children would walk in the strength of his grace, which is found in none other than the Son of God, the Son of the Father. His name is Jesus. He is the quintessence of grace and love. Jesus did not just come on the scene in the New Testament, friends. He was there from the beginning. And we're going to see some scriptures that show he was there from the very beginning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, we find these words. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Joseph Prince will stand from time to time, and he will remind his church, and he'll remind the whole world that he is vehemently, and that's the way he says it, against sin. Sin will wreck your life. And the Bible says it has a sting. It says the sting of death is sin. And then it says, and the strength of sin is the law. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. The strength of sin, it grows stronger by law. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Sin will not separate you from God. You say, wait a minute now, Pastor Mark, the Old Testament says your sins have separated you from God. That's right. Where did you find that? You found that in the Old Testament. You found it under what we call the Old Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant anymore. We're under the New Covenant. And you cannot show me a place in the New Testament where it will tell you that. It's not there. But let me tell you this, though. Sins will separate you from your employer. You don't believe me? Just go to work tomorrow morning. Take something. Put it in your pocket. It doesn't belong to you and let your manager find out that you just took something from the company. I guarantee you it will separate you from your employer. Sin can separate you from your spouse. Sin can separate you from your children. Sin can separate you from society. Just go out and commit a crime one time. You'll find yourself in a place called prison. You'll be separated from general population and general society. So it's not that it has no effect. Oh, it has effect on you. It's not really where I want the message to go, but you know what? To appreciate grace, you've got to understand what he's rescued us from. He has rescued us from that, the sting of death and the strength of sin to be the law in Jesus' name. Here's the way I thought the Holy Spirit say to me. If the strength of sin is the law, and it is, does it stand to reason that the strength of grace cannot also be the law? Does that stand to reason? I mean, fresh water and bitter water cannot flow from the same stream. Would you agree then that grace is governed by something or let me say it a better way, by someone that is greater than sin and law. Would you agree with that? It has to be. Listen at these next three scriptures. It helps us look plainly in the face of grace. The first scripture is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Friends, Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. Now, he's talking to believers here. You are not under the law, but you are under grace. What freedom is found in that scripture? Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. 
It says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. The law they're talking about is the Mosaic law. It's talking about the Ten Commandments, that law. It says the law, the Ten Commandments, was brought in so that the trespass might increase. This has been a scripture that I used to wrestle with because it looks like there might be a typo here. It says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. You sure the writer didn't say it so that it might decrease? See, in our natural minds, we think laws will make things decrease in terms of crime and whatnot. Laws never stop crime. They just try to find different ways to break it. They're just more manipulative, that's all. But it doesn't stop the criminal. So I looked at that and I said, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase? You mean so that the trespass might cease? No, so the trespass might increase. Why? Why would you want to give the law so that sin, trespass is just sin, why would you want to give the law so that trespass would increase? Without the law, you have no awareness of sin. It takes a law to make you aware that you've done something wrong. If you have no awareness of sin, then you have no need for a Savior. So the law was given as a schoolmaster, as the Bible says, to bring us unto Christ. Not just to Him, but unto Christ. That is the purpose of the law. But then the law, according to what we had previously read, is supposed to not have any longer hold on the believer's life. There's a rare medical condition called congenital analgesia. Congenital analgesia. These are two big medical words, but congenital just means from birth or inherited. That's all it means. Congenital. And analgesia just means insensitivity or numbness. So when you bring it all together, there's this medical condition that says, from birth, you inherited this insensitivity and this numbness. It's a condition in which a person absolutely feels no pain whatsoever. They have never felt pain a day in their life. That means a person can take their hand and stick it right in the fire and literally feel no pain. Now you would think, man, that would be a blessing to have something like that. No, it's a curse. It's a curse because God has given us, has built into our bodies pain receptors. Why? To tell us something's wrong. Something hurts. He's built that and programmed that into our DNA makeup to tell us this is not right. This will hurt you. God gave the law for the same reason. He gave us the law simply to tell us something's not right. Now again, not believers. Unbelievers. See, I got to the point in my life 21 years ago when I realized something wasn't right. No matter what I do, I keep failing. I keep feeling condemned. I keep feeling guilty and shameful. I knew about Jesus. I grew up in church, but I just had not accepted him yet. But the pain that I was experiencing from my sin drove me ultimately to the cross. I had to take a look at the altogether lovely one, and I said, yes, I want him to live inside of me, and I want to live inside of him. And oh, happy day. Pain receptors don't fix problems. In other words, if something happened and my finger got cut off, I'm sure I'd feel the sting. I'm sure I'd feel the pain. But there's nothing with the receptor that can take the finger and put it back on. It's the same way with the law. The law will tell you what's wrong. It will create a lot of pain in your life, but it can do nothing to help you. It can do nothing to fix you. It can do nothing to take away your pain. Only Jesus, the healer, can take away your pain. Only Christ. All humanity is born with congenital analgesia. Concerning our spiritual hearts from birth, we are insensitive and numb to the grace of God and to the love of God. Our numbness is absolutely fortified by ministers that will stand 
with a message in their pulpits and preach that God's mad at us and that he's judging us for our failures. You guys have heard those messages too. It is not true. God is not judging us. God is not rebuking us for our failures. God made us empty that we might be filled with his fullness. God made us thirsty so that we would be driven to the living water. God made us weak so that we could reach out and receive the strength of grace. He is the Christ. And then continuing in Romans chapter 5 there it says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The word increased and increased, these are two different Greek words. They're the same English word, but they're two different Greek words. One means to abound, the other one means to superabound. In other words, what it's saying is where the strength of sin increased. It says the strength of grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign, watch how it reigns, through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The strength of grace is Christ. It just got through telling us right there. It says so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me give you some very twisted logic, okay? There are pastors, even now, across this world that are standing in their pulpits, that are preaching messages that are designed to manipulate their congregations to stop sinning. They've heard something. A little word got back to them. You know what Johnny's doing? You know what Susie and Johnny's been doing? You know, they hear all this stuff. We hear this stuff as pastors. And I just say, you know, hey, listen, unless you're leadership and I need to address something with you, then listen, if the Holy Spirit hadn't taken care of it, how am I going to take care of it? So they bring these messages in of thou shalt not, or thou shalt. And they say, brother, you know what I mean? There's these Pentecostals, man. Brother, the Bible says that thou shalt have no other gods before you. And then the Bible says that you shall not make for yourself any graven image. And the Bible says that you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And I hear people taking his name in vain. You should not take his name in vain. And the Bible says that you shall remember the Sabbath and you shall keep it holy. That means you can't mow your lawn on certain days of the week. And friends, the Bible says that you are to honor your mother and your father. And the Bible says that you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not lie and you shall not covet. You know what they do? They're just preaching the Ten Commandments to you. And boy, how does that make you feel? I mean, the self-righteous would go, boy, I wish my brother was here. He needs to hear this message. <laughs> That's what we do, man. And listen, he might be talking to you. He probably is. That's what, oh, man, please, will deliver us from this stuff, would you? I just don't let that junk get on me, man. I don't let that stuff get on me because scandalous grace kind of overtook me here a few years ago. And it just sealed me with his goodness and his love. So, you know, I don't want to go down those roads anymore. I don't want to think about that junk anymore. Oh, man. I heard the Lord say, the strength of grace is not the law. The strength of grace is Christ. You preach Christ, and friends, you'll find out those Ten Commandments will not have a hold on you. It will unlock those unforced rhythms of grace, and they will overtake you. I went to a Promise Keepers rally in the 1990s in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you don't know about Promise Keepers, it's an organization that has a, a group of men that come together, just men. And it's a Friday night, all Friday night, and all day Saturday. And what they do is they have a theme. And each of the men that come are supposed to preach about that theme. So they're kind of all on the same page. And so I went to this event. And then Saturday, the last speaker of the day, he used a very powerful object lesson. 
I was amen in him as hard as anybody in that stadium. There's 65,000 men together were in the Metrodome where the Minnesota Vikings play. And he's preaching. In the middle of his message, two men come wheeling out a casket. That'll get your attention. And then he wanted to preach and get on all the men. Men, if you think more about the king of beers than you do the king of kings, that needs to go in the box. Men, let me talk to you. Let me talk to the ones that can't keep their eyes out of the girly magazines, okay? If you're in those things, that needs to go in the box. We'll bury it later. So he began to go through this list of things, even right down to remote controls. Man, some of you men, your God is your TV. And then finally he pulled a golf club out of his bag there, and he was swinging his golf club. And he was, and he, you know, some of you men sitting here, you know, your mind is out there on the golf course. It's not even on God right now. You'd rather be on the golf course. He was saying, I want you to, in your physical mind, picture yourself putting this away once and for all, and then we'll bury it later, put the lid on, and you'll be free. Friends, let me tell you something. I've got a better <laughs> and more permanent way of dealing with brokenness. I know of a better and more permanent way of dealing with strongholds and addictions and wrong-headed habits. You put yourself in remembrance that everything in your life that wasn't right was already put on Jesus and He was the one who was buried and you were raised in resurrection faith and life with Christ. Now that makes more sense than me going through all these charades of putting stuff in the box. No, all my stuff has been put on Christ. It's been put on Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, we find these words. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know, watch this now, for we know, not we think, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What did he just say? He's saying, listen, you died inside of me. When you died inside of me, I set you free at that moment from sin. I set you free from the penalty of sin. I set you free from the law as your taskmaster in Jesus' name. Quit trying to put things in a box. Jesus took it all when he died on the cross of Calvary. Let me show you how religious people can be. Can I just tell on myself for a second? When I married this beautiful woman over here, I'm not kidding you. This was uh, over 15 years ago. She had one boy at home. He was 15 at the time. And uh, I came into the home and didn't have the message of grace exactly cooking in my heart. And so, what do I do? I think I'm going to be croc boss. You know what I mean? The biggest crocodile, man. You know. And I'm not trying to push my weight around, but I'm the croc boss, you know? And so, Joe had a problem with leaving things laying around. And so, I just decided one day, I said, Joe, if you leave this lay on the floor, your clothes, what I'm going to do to him is I'm going to cut a little swatch out of that clothes to remind you I don't like that, okay? And because I said that and released those words into the atmosphere, it didn't take Joe, but I, I don't even think the day passed. Sure enough, going to the bathroom, there's clothes. Oh, I just told him I got to keep my word now. See, that's what law does, man. I got to keep my word. So sure enough, I got scissors out and I cut it all out and left the swatch on his bed and threw the clothes away. Joe came home and he's like, what's this? Kind of looks like a shirt I used to. What is this? Mom, what is this? Mom wasn't very happy. I'm going to tell you something, man. Mom wasn't very happy. And she said, the more you do that, the more it's going to cost you. I am not letting Joe go without clothes. 
So every clothes you cut up, I'm going to buy new ones, okay? She said it with grace. Believe me, she did. But see, what the enemy wants us to do is go through all these charades and all this stuff. And you know what I found? When you just say, God, it's really the work you need to do in me. It's not so much my boy that you need to do the work in. You need to do the work in me. And God began to do the work in me. And listen, we are very, very close to this day. We don't have to go through all these charades of doing stuff like that. Put a man under the law, and you'll turn him from a man into a maniac. The strength of sin is the law, folks, but the strength of grace is Christ. Trying to make people stop sinning by preaching the law is as ridiculous as Pharaoh telling the Israelites to make more bricks with no straw. Let me give you the backdrop on the story real quick. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had hundreds of thousands, probably a million or two, Israelite slaves. All Pharaoh had to say is, I'd like to have a um, pyramid right over there. He gave the order and it would have been done in short order. I'd like to have a storehouse over here. Order would have been given, it would have been done in short order. And so everything was going well until Moses stepped into his calling. See, Moses had been resting in the desert for 40 years and God said, okay, it's time to go deliver my people. So he gave him the message. He said, I want you to go to that Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. See, Pharaoh is just a type of law. That's all he is. And it's the same thing God is saying today. You know, would you just tell the people, let my people go when you get out from underneath the law? You don't have a taskmaster like that over you anymore. What Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, and Moses did, they walked into Egypt, essentially, but everybody that had known Moses prior had already died. So he was a total stranger. They didn't recognize him. And the first thing that Moses did, and Aaron did, is they went to the Israelites. They went to the elders. And they assembled all the elders, and they began to give them the message of, I know you haven't heard from God in hundreds of years. I know you've been a slave for hundreds of years. We've heard from God. Your slavery is about to end. I, I know that the taskmaster's been beating you, but he's going to let you go here pretty quick. We're going to go see him. And they've got all Israel so riled up that they quit working. And so then they go from there to the Pharaoh, and they're standing in front of the Pharaoh. And they tell him, they say, listen, God said. Pharaoh's like, God? Who's God? I don't know no God. God said, let the people go, Pharaoh. No, I am not letting the people go. And he, he tells them, listen, you're going to have all these plagues. You're going to have all this trouble that you're going to bring. So that's kind of the backdrop to what's been going on there. Exodus chapter 5, verses 6 through 19. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. Now let me stop you for say, and say this. When they would make bricks, they would make them out of clay and mud and straw. They would take straw stubble and they would chop it up into little bitty pieces. And that straw is really what fortified that brick. You don't want to make a brick without straw. What had been going on is the Egyptians would go out and get the straw for them. So now it's the Israelites' responsibility to get their own straw. Do you see the dilemma you're in? It's quicksand. It just keeps pulling you down and down and down, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. 
Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy? That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. I want to tell you something. I want you to look at the last word. I put them in bold letters. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble. About five or six years ago, I began to realize I was in trouble. I was under a law-based, performance-based Christianity. And I said, God, I, I'm realizing that this is not the way you want me to live. I think the realization comes when we wake up and say, this is not who I am. This is not the way you've called me to live. You've not called me to work like this and be, be under these taskmasters of the law. And so that is where my hunt for grace came. The law programming, this is the important part that I think that we get here. Because the law actually quits speaking to you once you become a believer. The law was from God. The law is designed to quit speaking to you, but the messages that men have put in your heart keep talking to you. The doctrine that men have programmed you with keep talking to you. The stuff that you've read and thought and, and believed over the years, that stuff, that garbage keeps talking to you. The law programming, like the Egyptian taskmasters, demands more from you but refuses to help you. When you fail to meet quota, in other words, you fail to meet your recommended daily allowance of reading the Bible. When you fail to meet your daily recommended allowance of praying and fasting and knocking on doors, if you know what I'm talking about, the law programming, like the Egyptians, beats you and calls you names. Listen, this was a real clean name here, lazy. Man, I could, that one I can deal with, but the law, the law-based system calls you worse stuff than that. Guilty, shameful, failure, loser hypocrite, and even go so far as to call you a sinner when you're no longer a sinner. You see, a sinner is someone whose nature has never been changed. When you come to Christ, you are no longer a sinner. I didn't say you don't sin, but you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint in the eyes of the Lord. The law programming, like the Egyptian pharaoh says, work harder. If you want people to sin more, then give them the law. If believers allow themselves to be governed by what we call the Mosaic Law or the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, then they're going to experience condemnation, they're going to experience intimidation, they're going to experience humiliation, and they're going to experience exasperation. All the things that you can never find true rest in. The law relentlessly demands grace consistently supplies. The law is inflexible. It misses no opportunity to tell you you've missed it. It misses no opportunity to condemn a person. The law never says thank you, never compliments you when you've done good. It is a taskmaster that believers allow to speak into their lives. It tells us to work harder, and then it calls us name when we fail. Again, technically, it's not the law, but it's the programming of the law that's doing that. The law demands perfection, as my wife always says, every day, all day, or all day, every day. 
I was in the post office getting stamps last week, and I bought some stamps, and I had all my envelopes up there on the counter, and the postal clerk took one stamp off, and she put it on my envelope. And I watched her how she did that. I made note of that. I said, wow, you really did that with care. And she told me the story. She said, you know, it wasn't terribly long ago. There was a man in here, and I took his stamp, and I placed it on his envelope. And she said, I got it a little crooked. And she said, that man absolutely threw a fit. He about came apart in the post office. She said, in front of everybody, he just threw a fit. That's exactly what the law does. Unless you do everything perfect all day, every day, it throws a fit. It doesn't care where you're at. It doesn't care who's watching. It doesn't care anything about that. It's going to have its last word. You know what the post office clerk told me? She said this. She said, that incident with that man, it's made me very self-conscious. That's why she said it. She says, so every time now, when I take a stamp and I have to put it on somebody's envelope, she said, I make sure it's perfect. I said, really? She said, yes. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, God, what is her motivation for perfection? Is it love? <laughs> it's not love. She wants to be perfect so Mr. Law won't scream at her anymore. It's the wrong motivation. Mr. Law does not have a voice in my life. And if you're letting him speak to you, you better tell him stop it. She does it so the Egyptian taskmaster won't be her and humiliate her by calling her names in front of customers. Friends, the last time I checked, I read that believers are dead to the law. That means the law has no right and no jurisdiction to speak into my life. Now, I gave this example one other time, but I want to say it again because I think it, it just drives home the point. Imagine me, I'm the McDonald's manager in a big mall with a big food court. Usually you'll find Burger King and Taco Bell and the rest of them. Now, imagine I walk out of my store and I walk over into Burger King you're at the cashier. And I say to you, excuse me, your services are done for the day. I'll take your position. I'm the manager. You would recognize me in an instant. I don't know exactly what you would do, but probably most people would probably say, let me get my manager. Just a minute, I'll be right back. Because we recognize he has no jurisdiction in my life. He has no right to speak to, to me like that. I do not work for you. I do not serve you. Do you see what I'm saying? I know a man and a woman personally. They went through a divorce. She was single for more than 10 years, probably 12 years, 13 years. And then one day, the former husband called. She's remarried. He gets to talk to the new husband. The new husband happened to answer. And the former husband was saying, I called you up to tell you that is my wife. And the man says, no, I'm pretty sure she's not. Uh, do you remember putting a ring on her finger? I remember standing in front of a licensed minister when he says, I do pronounce you husband and wife. He said, you stole her. Give her back. You see, friends, that's really what the message of the law is doing. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, we see what God says about it. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit God. Friends, do yourselves a favor. Can you do yourselves a favor here? Change your phone number once and for all, okay? And while you're at it, register on the do not call list, okay? And if that former husband calls you, report him immediately to Jesus. So the next time the law starts to speak to you, be like, that's the McDonald's manager. You can't talk to me like that. Would you like a fundamental difference between law and grace? 
Let me tell you what the fundamental difference is. The law demands grace deposits. Now, roll that concept over into your checking account one time. When there's a demand placed upon your checking account, your checking account grows weaker. Am I right? Absolutely. You put a demand on it, $100 check, it just grew weaker. But when there's a deposit put into your checking account, your checking account is strengthened. And that's how you recognize whether you're listening to the voice of law or you're listening to the voice of grace. One will take from you, one will give to you. Law demands grace supplies. The law is demanding. I just got through telling you he's demanding. How do we fulfill the demand of the law? Romans chapter 13 verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Watch this now. Therefore, love. Not law. Love. Not rules. Love. Therefore, love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Not just any love. It had to be perfect love. It had to be untainted love. And only that love could come from Christ. No one else could. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said these words. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Friends, let me tell you something. The law is still here. I'm thankful for the law. For one reason, it brings people to Christ. I'm thankful for the law. The Bible says the law is perfect. The Bible says the law is holy. And the Bible even says the law is righteous. But it cannot make you holy, perfect, or righteous. Only Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish or do away with the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that word literally fulfill means to satisfy their demand. Jesus said, okay, the law was craving something. It was craving for someone to be perfect. Someone to act perfect. And only Jesus walked that road. Only Jesus said, hey, listen, I'll fulfill that law. And when I die, I'll place everybody inside of me. I'll place people inside of me. And so that what I've done, they become the beneficiary of. Friends, we walk in victory by the revelation that someone else has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He is called Christ. He is the strength of grace. His love for us does not condemn us because of crooked stance or crooked ways. His love for us does not call us names and humiliate us in front of other people. His love does not demand that we meet our quotas and then beat us when we fall short. That's not the kind of love I know of Jesus. He doesn't do that. God did not create man because he was lonely or because he wanted a family. I've heard this before. You know, God created man because God was lonely. God created man because God needed a family. No. If you believe that, then that means God lacks something. God didn't create man because he was lonely. He's the all-sufficient one. God didn't create man just because he wanted a family. He had a family. I'll tell you why God created man. Because God is love. And the very nature of love says, I must give. I must share. The nature of love is to procreate. We see this manifestation of what God did in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His only, his sole motivation was love. He wasn't looking for slaves. He wasn't looking for servants. He wasn't even necessarily looking for a bride for his son, although he got that. He did it because he is love. The strength of his grace, the grace that we're talking about, the strength of his grace is entrenched 
It's embedded, it's encoded in His love for us. It is the same love that was there in the beginning of creation. It didn't just happen in the book of John. It's the same love that was present when the Godhead said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man. And Jesus said, yes, we'll make man. And you know what? Daddy, I'll let you slay me before the foundation of the earth. What a love that is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we find these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Do you notice the end the is italicized? That means they are not originally there in the Hebrew language. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 actually begins with the word beginning. Beginning God created. But that word beginning points to the Son of the Father. The word for create there in Genesis 1.1 is the Hebrew word bara. Bara. When we think about languages, the Hebrew language is the most complex. Encoded in the Hebrew language are word pictures, their number system, definitions, expressions. It's amazing. It's, it's so complex and so deep. In the beginning, God created. That word created is the word bara. It's kind of like when you step over into the Aramaic. Have you ever heard this? You ever read this in the Aramaic where it says, when Jesus was talking to Simon, he said, Simon Barjona. Do you remember reading that? Simon Barjona? Barjona is not his last name. So what does Barjona mean? What the Aramaic did is they went all the way back into Genesis and they said, listen, I want to call him son of John. That's what Jonah means. It means John. So Jesus literally said, Simon, son of John. So the Aramaic word became bar. They borrowed it from created because they knew that Jesus and, and his Father had created everything, including sons. Bara is what it is. The first word of the Hebrew alphabet is the word Aleph, and it is the father of the alphabet. In fact, if we think about the first two letters, Aleph and Bet, that's where we get our English word alphabet. We even borrowed it from the Hebrew back then. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, what we see here, this will help this scripture make a lot more sense. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now watch what it says. All things were made by Him. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light. Of men. When John wrote the Gospel of John, he went all the way back because he begins with the words, in the beginning was the word. He went all the way back to the beginning of time and he said, listen, I'm going to do a lot of talking about Jesus, so let me show you where he first came up at. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, the Son of the Father created. Such life, such light, such love can only be found in Christ. My closing words. We talk about the law of first mention. And so we're talking about love. You can never really appreciate grace until you understand the love of God. So where does this word love come up for the first time in the Bible? Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. And it came to pass that after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom 
Thou lovest. There's the first time that word comes up in the Bible. Love. And get thee to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Friends, listen. Isn't it wonderful that the first time we see love it's introduced in the Bible between a father and a son? Abraham is a type of God. He's a picture of God. Isaac, we always say, is a type and shadow of Jesus. But actually, Jesus really is not so much Isaac in this story. You and I are the Isaac. You see, because Isaac got spared this day. Jesus did not get spared. Just read Romans chapter 8, verse 32. The Bible says, For God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The ram coming up the backside of the mountain, that was Christ. The one that was stuck in the thorn bushes with the crown of thorns on his head. That was the one that Abraham ultimately grabbed and put on the altar and sacrificed. That was Christ. You and I were on an altar of death and God said, no, 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 no. My plan from the very beginning was my son, not you. I want one person to die to sin. And it's going to be my son. Abraham, a type and shadow of God. You see, Isaac, like you and I, were bound to that altar of law. See, that's what it was. It was just law, and he was bound to the altar. But grace in the form of the ram came up the other side of the mountain to rescue us. Now, listen to this as I close. The word lovest, and remember Genesis chapter 22, in verse 2, it mentions the word love. It is the Hebrew word ahav. It looks like it's pronounced ahab, but it's pronounced ahav. There are three Hebrew letters that form this word for ahav. They are the aleph, he, and be. That is the word for love in Hebrew. Aleph, he, be. The word aleph means strength. And if you look at their picture, their word picture, they'll actually show you in the Hebrew text a picture of an ox. The word aleph means strength. The word heh is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it always represents grace. So we have aleph, heh, we have strength, and we have grace. As we saw in the picture, heh in the middle is the man with lifted arms. I'm going to show you what aleph represents in just a moment. Hey, who do you suppose that refers to? That is my Jesus right there. Hey always points to grace. And baked points to the Son of the Father. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. It is called the Father of the alphabet. In John 14, 11, Jesus said these words. He said, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm not next to the Father, I'm in the Father. The Father is not just next to me, I'm in the Father. Hear those words of him saying that to you today. You're just not close to him. You're in the Father. You're in Christ, and he is in you. And let me show you a word picture that really drives home this point. Friends, this is not by coincidence. In the Father is the Son. In the Father, before the Lamb was slain, the Father could say, I already see your Son carrying the cross. Remember, the Hebrew alphabet always speaks in pictures and in words. Friends, encapsulated in the Hebrew word for love are the letters Aleph, 
pay and debt, which literally reads like this, the strength of grace is one. Father, I want to just thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. I want to thank you that you take such wonderful truths, such wonderful nuggets, and you just hide them there in the Word for us, Daddy, for us to find. Not to keep them from us, Daddy, but for that we would find them so that we would be full of joy. It reminds me of the man that found treasure in a field. And the moment he found treasure in the field, the Bible says he went and bought the field. And I want to thank you, Father, that your word declares that we are the pure field. We are your substance. And you've taken the most wonderful treasure of all eternity and placed that treasure right in front of us. It is Aleph Chebet, your love. It is the strength of grace in Christ. And Father, we thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.